January the 29th, 2017, lecture discussion number 269, I hope, on the book of Romans. No promises on my ability to keep the sequence intact. I have a letter that I should read to you. It's uh, from Kathy. Kathy in, let me make sure, Raleigh, North Carolina. So here it is. Hi, Pastor Steve and whoever is reading this. Uh, since Steve doesn't like emails. I'm suspecting that that's, she writes that because she is on Sermon Audio and not on Cliffside.org. Thank you for your faithful exposition of God's word. In less than a year, I've listened to all your sermons. Now, should we all feel immediately sorry for poor Kathy? Yeah. Yes, with great sympathy is emanating from the congregation or the, co- uh, the class here, Kathy. Uh, I've listened to all your sermons that I could get my well ears on and have been greatly blessed. And well, thank you for that. Now, I must wait for the next installment, which isn't always weekly, since you Alaskans seem to play hooky a lot. <laughs> we in Raleigh, North Carolina, are more regular in our church attendance <laughs> because God loves us more and gives us nicer weather. The last two days were sunny and in the 70s. Same here, Kathy. Absolutely. Okay, maybe minus 70 in Fairbanks. Sorry for saying God loves us more, not really fake. Sorry. I'm learning to look even more carefully at Scripture as I read, striving to discern the patterns, types, wedding ceremonies, steps, etc., which God placed in his word as aids to our understanding. That happens to be the topic of today's discussion. Again, I love God and, and revere the Bible more deeply. As a result, I have a question, and her question is about... Um, the time sequence, or I'm sorry, the time uh, line of Adam and Eve and the fall of Satan and the Garden of Eden and all and the fall of Adam, the, the, the building of Eve, how that all fits together. And uh, that's something that uh, I'll refer to again. She's actually asking about the Hebrew principle of recurrence. Now, she didn't put it in that frame, but if you have questions about how Adam how Genesis 1 through, my goodness, I would say 1 through 7, frankly, but certainly 1 through 4, which would end with Cain and Abel. If you have questions as how that, what the time lapse is and where all the pieces fit in chronological order, the one who will explain it to you best is uh, uh, Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum in his book, Footsteps of the Messiah. And he explains the Hebrew principles of recurrence of uh, uh fulfillment, and those those two will get you uh, through that process. It's a logical exercise. You, you must somehow set a timeline together and insert the fall of Satan with respect to the creation of Adam, with respect to the creation of Eve, and then fit it all in, that, in the structure of Genesis, which is a recurrence structure. If that doesn't mean anything to you, see me later. Enough of that. Business over. Well, we took a, a leisurely sojourn last uh, Sunday into Occam's Razor. Hopefully some of you remember that. Out of consideration for all the snow that we had, the heavy snowfall, being the highly trained religious, religious professional that I am, I knew the NFL playoff slash two feet of snow would be an impediment to the class attendance. It always is this time of year. So I saw the advantage uh, uh, being that only the hardy and the most holy would battle the elements and come here last week and this week and decided to lurch into philosophy and reasoning because 
when I like it, to it's appropriate for the discussion we are in. Eventually, one of the points of Lecture 268 last week, the objective was to place omniscience on the table once again. And what I mean by that is that every time you have a question with regard to creation or evolution or monism or dualism, eventually you're going to have to confront omniscience. To summarize last week, uh, last Sunday, the extent of the universe and the ubiquity of its governing laws is corroborative of an omniscient intelligent agency. It's evidence. You don't get the structure of the universe without an intelligent agency. It's definitive, unassailable proof. Now, I know some would say that that's my opinion. It is more than my opinion. And also in concert with that is the irreducible complexity of life. So the two of them, the miracle that's life, the biological sciences are unable to to do anything but describe life. They cannot, they cannot produce an explanation of life. They certainly cannot come up with a concept that allows life to develop. Now, they will say otherwise. Again, that's not my opinion. But the miracle life and the structure of the, and the mechanical function of the universe are so much evidence of an omniscient intelligence that they're only willfully or intentionally rejected. The universe and life are attestations of a creator. Is that, that's getting bad if I have to say attest. Yeah, see there? I was scared of that. Attestations of a creator. Occam's razor, I proposed, uh, validates the conclusion that that is so. The two combined, individually, they're, they, in, they stand alone, but you put them together and you overwhelm the need for evidence or proof. That's what we were doing last, last week, validating the conclusion. And that conclusion is uh, opposite of the monistic, atheistic system that they usually assume. Okay, from that, we return to the creation seven, or the seven days of God. And I put the presupposition on the board of the thesis being that all scriptural sevens find their origin in the creation seven, or all sevens return to the seven days of God. I am calling the first week of the Bible, the first seven. Week and seven are interchangeable in language in the Hebrew. I am saying that that first seven in Genesis is the seven days of God, and every seven you will find in the Bible will take you back to that seven. And we'll somewhat follow the pattern that I gave you last week today, much to the dismay of everyone who endured it. So the reasoning, philosophy, logic aspect of it followed by the seven days of God. And so muttering and groaning must be kept to inaudible levels this week. You know who I'm talking about. You know which ones of you are guilty. We can't, so as not to alert the vast internet audience, you see, to the exact nature of this, uh, what would we call you, an analog congregation. By that I mean we have people like Kathy out there from Raleigh, North Carolina. We have to fool her and the rest of them. You have a role to play in that. That means you laugh at my jokes. See, not good enough. 
Those of you who laugh the loudest have to move forward because of the listening devices, the recording devices. Those listening by means of the Internet think highly of us. I just read the letter, didn't I? You, you think I have no reason for that. And we should attempt to leave them in that mistaken assessment. So, Okay, as some of you are aware, Kurt Gudels, Gudels, it's, he's a German, so there's an umlaut over the O. So it's pronounced U. Kurt Gudel, his incompleteness theorems were in the news recently. And it was reported that uh, Gudel's mathematics were proved correct. So let's put Mr. Gudel up here. I'll give you his first name. And... Uh, He was a brilliant mathematician back in the early 1900s, 1930s probably. And it was again reported that the mathematics for his incompleteness theorems were proven. And some seized upon that to say that this confirmed the existence of God. Proving the incompleteness theorem, theorems of Gödel, the mathematics of it, was the equivalent of confirming the existence of God. How many of you read about this? I thought none would be the answer, and I was correct. This is an extraordinary piece of information for everyone. I should say that the confirming of the existence of God by proving the mathematical integrity of Gödel's calculations is an extension that's not justified, to use a polite euphemism. However, I was especially pleased to see Gödel's incompleteness theorems being discussed by anyone, uh, frankly. Who should discuss them the most? The church. You've all gone to church, many of you, for uh, 50 years or better. Don't admit it. But it's true. I know, I can see you. A long time ago, I was going to write smiley faces on my... I've never done it. Don't ask me why I thought of that right now. Every time I flipped it over, there would be some subliminal conversation between the two of us that the Internet could not see. That was my plan. Now, with this thing, this device of... What do we call that device? It's called a what? A camera, yeah. We hate it, as you know, because it reports true things, which we don't want. <laughs> okay, anyway. The church should have been discussing Goodle. Goodle thought deeply, perhaps more so than his contemporaries. Who were his contemporaries? They were Einstein, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg. They were the founders of the quantum theories. Uh, Planck. And he is rarely acknowledged, and uh, that is regrettable. Certainly the contemporary romantic church of our Laodicean age has no idea who Kurt Gödel is or was and has no interest. Is is the correct way to say. Unsurprisingly, the church of our time loves being illiterate. That's Proverbs 122. But I rant. 
For those of you with physics backgrounds, uh, typically Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is in is a companion. So I have Goodell's. Um, And completeness theorems, did I spell uncertainty correctly? Somebody tell me if I did. It's hard to do this, you know, to, to spell while you're writing in front of yourself. <coughs> but uh, Heisenberg and, and, uh, and uh, Goodell's incompleteness and uncertainty principles, sorry, I've got those out of order, those are alongside of each other, and I submit that's quite appropriate. Goodell proved a single complete proof of all things was impossible. That was his defining work. Let me repeat that. He, Goodell, said a single complete proof of all things was impossible. And when he said that, that was a death blow. That was a, a shot across the entire quantum physics scientific community. You see, physicists and mathematicians especially have long strived for this mysterious, unreachable so far theory of everything. A unifying, complete explanation that brings agreement to all of the unknowns, brings resolution to the currently incompatible, especially the quantum to the Newtonian. Uh, and Goodell established, and he said as strongly as he could, that that is impossible, it will never happen. He stated that there would always remain as an aftermath of any conclusion the unprovable. So whatever you proved, you would still have unprovable. Always more that is true than can be proved. So you may have a proof, but and that proof may be in fact true, but there would still nonetheless be something else that's true that you hadn't yet proven, which is a philosophical argument for what? Omniscience. And therefore infinity. Omniscience de demands infinity. You can't have omniscience without infinity. Omniscience is knowing. Omniscience, therefore, is an intelligent agency. And that's the crux of the discussion today. Is it intelligent agency that is responsible for life and for the universe, the mass of material in the universe, or is it a mathematically impossible series of events? Notice how I threw in a commentary on the last one. Because that is the discussion. If it is an intelligent agency that is omniscient, then there is other things brought to the fore. One, existence. Do you have existence or not? Existence requires, requires eternity. Eternity is infinity. Infinity requires omniscience. Omniscience is intelligence. So all of these wrap up into the discussion of cre creation by a creator. And Goodall understood the relationship between his incompleteness theory and the, uh, and the uh, philosophy logic involved. Specifically, he understood it to be, I can erase this now, for those of you who keep notes, for those of you who do that, uh, Now all of this stuff being on YouTube, it's a lot easier to take notes. Goodell, to repeat, understood that there was this relationship between his theorem and philosophic paradox reasoning. 
specifically the classical liar sentence paradox. If you aren't familiar with it, it'll be fun for you. By fun, I mean, that's a relative term. Uh, defined by who? Me. So, it will be fun for you is really something that I think is fun for me, and I'm extrapolating and assigning it to you as fun. What are the chances that it's really fun for you? Not good. But let's hope. So here's the classical liar sentence. This sentence is false. I'll let you contemplate that while I restore my medical level. Ultimately, the search for a solution to the classical liar paradox sends one on to contemplate infinity. I'll jump way ahead. Let me repeat that. When you are searching in a solution for this paradox you ultimately will contemplate infinity, which means you will contemplate existence, which means you will contemplate omniscience, which means you now have to contemplate omnipresence, omnipotence, omnibenevolence. All discussions of infinity will lead to omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence, which, you, which are all inseparable. You cannot be pure good without being omniscient. Does that make sense? And you cannot be... Uh, omniscient without being pure good. They cannot be separated. Logically, begin to reason your way through that. Ask why. We're going to start that process for you. If you missed philosophy class freshman year college, then I'm going to help you make it up today. For those of you who might be unfamiliar, if you forgot uh, philosophy class freshman year college, well, here we go. If you're unfamiliar with the classical liar's paradox, uh, let's uh, make a cursory examination of this sentence is false. By cursory, I mean shallow. I'm not even beginning to scratch the surface. If this sentence is false, is true. Does that make sense to you? Good. One person is, uh, is nodding their head. That's fantastic. So let me repeat that. If this sentence is false, is true. Then the sentence is false, thus it cannot be true. I got three more people nodding their heads. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a new record for me. If it were indeed false, then it is true, and true is certainly not false. Let me back you up. This sentence is false. Is it true or not? We're going to say this sentence is false. We're going to say that it is true. If we say it is true, then the sentence is not false. If we say that it is false, and thank you for starting to argue with me, that is really, I am just thrilled. <laughs> now, let's go a different direction for you, right? Now, what does philosophy teach you? Why has the church abandoned it? 
The church has abandoned philosophy because philosophy is the study of logic and reasoning. Can't have that in the church today because I'll get onto that rant in a minute. But let's go back to this. If the sentence, if we decide that the sentence is false, we made the decision. This sentence is false. If we say it's false, then what are we saying about this sentence is false? We're declaring it to be true. Well, if it's true, then it can't be false. The classical liar sentence cannot be true or false, or it can be both simultaneously, which is the result. Which is a result in conflict. You will find this paradox commonly uh, rendered this way. More so, I am lying. I'm going to ask you, once again, we're going to assign, and I'll repeat this um, for the record to make it more compatible with order. I'm going to assign, I am lining as true. I've made it true. If I am lying is true, what, am I, what has happened? What's the result? And it's the same, isn't it? It's the same as this sentence is false. If I am lying is assigned as true, then the statement I am lying is what? False. You see that? And of course, if I am a lying is assigned as false, so I assign truth or false to the sentence. So if I assign to the sentence that it is false, if I am lying is false, then the sentence is what? True. So once again, I have this conflict, a result in conflict. The best known of these types of paradoxes, and there are paradoxes in Scripture. What is the scriptural paradox that is the most commonly debated today, or in the past for that matter? Do you know? It is free will and God's omniscience. How can free will and God's omniscience coexist? You have entire denominations that say they cannot. We call that hyper-Calvinism. But the Bible says both are true. It's a paradox. Most people will look at these kinds of paradoxes and go, I'm not even going to deal with this. It's not something that I find valuable to me. I would rather be stupid. That is a, uh, a commentary, isn't it? I'm putting uh, my opinions inside my lectures, which I always do. I don't wish for you to be ignorant. The whole point of the church should be to bring wisdom. God is an intelligent agency, an omniscient agency, an, in, an omniscient intelligence. He made us, and he has designs for our capabilities, and we seldom reach the level that he has intended. However, he's omniscient and we have will. All of that is a, is a, a system by which we must solve or must solve that, that system. So let me put this one on the board for you. Since you have now solved this,
This is one of the greatest things that ever came out of France. Now, I will say Rene Descartes and his substance dualism or his radical dualism. Uh, same thing. God exists. And all this is, is taking the, this sentence is false or I am lying and co-opting it into this form. God exists. None of, let me make sure the language is correct here. I don't want to, none of the sentences of this pair is true. So I have a pair. This is a unit. God exists and none of the sentences of this pair is true. These are all, all of this, this one, I am lying, the sentence is false, uh, are extremely valuable logic exercises. Again, many disagree with that. They see only wasted time. And I find anything that constructs reasoning skills very important. The source of all reasoning is God himself. And the plan that he has for us is to go through his word with reasoning. He says so in Hebrews. And that's in opposition to the romantic church of our time, the the predominant church structure of today. The church structure of today uh, intentionally deconstructs reason. The last thing they want to have is somebody in their congregation that is challenging to them. Many reasons for that. I believe the purposes of this deconstructing reason is to celebrate vacuity or to fleece the lambs. You pick. But those two are also inseparable. The dumber you are, the dumber we are, the easier we are to separate from our uh, economics. To quote somewhat P.T. Barnum. There is, as you know, Chronister's law of inverse proportionality as it applies to the church. Which goes like this. The greater the wealth of the pastor, the lesser the intelligence of his congregation. I think you will find it inviolable. The greater the wealth of the pastor, the lesser the intelligence of his congregation. I'll go and extend it to this. The richer the pastor, the less scripture the congregation knows. That is by design. That man that's getting rich off the people in his congregation knows that he's got to keep them at a certain level. And anyone that goes past that level has to be cast out. Because those people are threats. The converse of that, as you can imagine, as some of you have already begun to, to think through, the more so impoverished the pastor, the more so considerable the elections of the congregation. Let me say it another way. If the pastor dresses really badly and drives a junky car and lives in a rotten little house, say on a street in South Anchorage, the smarter his congregations will be. You all must be geniuses, is what I'm saying, right? Savants by this accounting. 
Have you worked through God exists and none of these sentences of this pair is true? If none of the sentences of this pair is true is false, I'm going to assign false to this one. Oops. Again, understanding the assignment aspect of this is important. The assignment of false is to none of the sentences of this pair is true. If I sign that as false, how does that affect this? Then it's true that God exists, right? So God exists is true. Now, I'm going to assign... You could go any other way you wish, but I'm just going to do it this way for today. I'm going to assign it as true. None of the sentences in this pair is true. Then what? The answer is, is God exists is true again. Yes, that's absolutely the case. That's the best thing that ever came out of France, other than Rene Descartes. And feel free to work that out while I, while I move along. <coughs> Last week it was my intention to begin to cement the proposition that all sevens return to the creation seven, as well as to establish the trial of Adam and Eve, and Satan at Genesis 3 is also a seven. So I make two things that I am proposing for you. I have to race this now. I hope that you've got that worked out. If you haven't, don't worry. What will we do on the 12th of February? That's right. Make the other people endure it as well. So you will be ahead of them. And you will go, well, that's simple. Much to their, uh, much to the blow of their egos. Uh, let me say again, I, the point of it is to begin to get you to think in logical, reasoning fashions. That's critical as you go through the Bible. Especially critical with regard to the sevens. This is a logic, reasoning element. What would you expect from God? Do you think that... Uh, he doesn't ask you, let me repeat this. I, I don't say it often enough. I need to interject it in as many uh, lectures as I can because the audience is now constantly in flux. You don't feel you're saved. You know you're saved. Abraham did not say, how can I feel I am saved? He said, how can I know I am saved? Your feelings with regard to your salvation are insufficient. Not just insufficient, they are, uh, what's the word I want here? Useless. You work through your salvation. You reason your salvation. That is why reasoning skills need to be taught. Thomas Sowell famously said, uh, we, are, we should not tell students what to think. We should tell students, teach students how to think. The Bible is, once the Bible was removed from the school system, the, the preeminent intellect ever imaginable was taken away from children. And we get what we got. 
we learn to read in my generation from Scripture because it is the most complex structure, language structure, logic structure that ever can even be imagined, and no one has ever mastered it. It's too complicated because it was created by, written by, an omniscient mind. So, it was my intention last week to repeat this, that that all sevens in the Bible are, are based on the creation seven, and I would be able to lay the template of the creation seven over any seven that I could find in the Bible. How many sevens are in the Bible? Ugh. Thousands. All of them have a creation template assignment to them. What I mean by that is you can put the creation seven over any seven that you can find. I mentioned the trial of Adam and Eve. I'm trying to establish that Adam and Eve, their trial was a seven. Now, how long a seven, I don't know. I'm I'm assuming, making the assumption that it was a seven-day trial, but it could have been a seven-week trial or a seven-month trial. The injection of time is always appropriate in Scripture. Always ask, how long did this thing take, this process? Adam and Eve's process was extraordinary. How long were they in fig leaves, for example? Four days, four months? Which do you think is the likely? You can make the case in any way you wish. But I'm asking this question. How long did the trial take? And I'm telling you that I'm confident without any resistance that it was a seven. As is the judgment seat of Christ, a seven. And the tribulation is a seven. The time of the troubling of Jacob, as you know, the troubling of Jacob is a phrase at, at Laban over Leah and uh, the beloved Rachel. He is troubled for a seven, a seven-day period, and then he fulfills a seven years. So the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble, and it goes back to the seven of Jacob and Laban. And the Jacob and Laban seven, whether it's the seven day or the seven year, irrespective of whether it's Leah or Rachel, goes back to the creation seven. And you can look and see them that way. The judgment seat of Christ and the, and the troubling of Jacob are not controversial in the sense they are recognized as seven year periods. And so I am saying to you that I see the trial in Adam of Eve, the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan as also a seven that is affecting, if you will, if you want to think of it that way. I can make conclusions on the tribulation and the judgment seat based on the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan. Put those sevens together, and once I've got them, I'm going to move them over to the sevens of God, which is the creation seven. Okay, I hope that makes sense. It's only a matter of time before the entire theological academia agrees with me about this. It's going to happen as it always does. When will they ever learn? That's a rhetorical question, implies the negative. Okay, Satan is cast down at Genesis 3, and he is cast down at Revelation 12. I'm telling you, Revelation 12 is a 7, so therefore Genesis 3 is a 7. I know exactly when he is cast down at Revelation 12. He's cast down at the midpoint three and a half years into the 7. And, and Satan is seeking to kill the Jews and the believers in Christ in Revelation 12 when he hits the ground. So what do I now assume? 
in Genesis 3. As soon as he hits the ground, he intends to kill. How happy is he about being in the dirt? Not happy. It says it in, Gen- in Revelation 12, and he's going to kill in Genesis 3. I think it's likewise the case. Hatred and an intent to murder. Kill as fast as he can. So, I should expect to find a complementary association between the tribulation saints and somebody who is killed. That is adjacent to Genesis 3. Where would I go? Oh, let's try Genesis 4. I have a murder there, don't I? I have Abel is murdered. I am saying there is a complementary, a correlation, a correspondence. Pick your C word out of your thesaurus between Abel and the tribulational saints. I had somebody say to me not too long ago, they said, when you read your yellow, the most holy yellow pieces of paper every week, it sounds like you're talking to me. Do you know why? And that's a great compliment, but do you know why it sounds like I'm talking to you when I read it? Because I wrote it. That's how you know Bill O'Reilly did not write any of his books. (laughs) Couldn't help myself there. Somebody, Marie was talking to me about that. So was Eric earlier. Bill O'Reilly and I are still fighting over killing Jesus as a title, which is the height of, uh, what's that word that I want? Uh, Stupidity and blasphemy and heresy. I can't make it worse than that, or I would. (laughs) So, I see this association between Abel and what just happened in the, in the trial of Adam and Eve, and I also see it in what's going on in the tribulation. So I, once I begin to put those pieces together, I can make conclusions that are reason-based. Satan is cursed in Genesis 3. So is Adam. So is Eve. But Satan is cursed. I, cursed is a, the curse is a, a major factor. In Genesis 3, who is cursed in Genesis 4? Cain is cursed. So all I see is this repetition now. That's interesting to me. I don't think it is. Is there any coincidental accidents accidents, um, from an omniscient intelligence in the Bible? Do you see the contradiction in that? Very, very many scholars will say to you, this is coincidental. Well, then it's not God, because God is omniscient. Notice Genesis 4, 9. In, uh, and, then, and notice also that it is where God asks Cain a question. It's very similar to Genesis 3, 9. So 4, 9 and 3, 9, to add to this curse element... are also together here. 
to Adam, omniscient God, omniscient God is asking a question. Does he know the answer? Of course he does. So what's the purpose of the question? It is revelatory. He is revealing uh, something to us, and he's revealing something to the person he is asking the question. He asks Adam, omniscient God in 3.9, where are you? What does he mean? Is this hide and go seek? Can you hide from an omniscient God who's outside of time and is omnipresent? Please stop. And Adam confesses, and his confession is incredible. I was afraid. I was afraid. Isn't that interesting? What's that imply? Yeah, well, lots of things. Something made him afraid, but he didn't say, I am afraid, did he? So has the fear subsided? I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. Three parts to that. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. Hid from who? Afraid of who? What does he mean naked? What's your choices for hiding? Does he believe that he can hide from an omniscient God? Do you believe you can hide from an omniscient God? Please answer no. Does, is Adam smarter than us all put together? Oh, yes, he is. So what does he mean? I was a, he said, I was naked and I hid. Is afraid connected to hiding? Is it possible afraid is not connected to hiding? So this is why you have to go through these uh, liar's paradox questions, right? And Cain answers, I'm sorry, at Genesis 4-9, omniscient God asks Cain, where is Abel your brother? Do you see the similarities to the question? Where are you? Where is Abel your brother? Does God know where Abel is? Of course he, Abel, the person is with him. He's right there. But does Cain know where Abel is? Not the body. He never calls us a body. He always calls us a living soul. If my body was here, he would never, God would never say, there's Steve. Who would say, there's Steve? That's right. Dumb people would do that. That's not how God thinks. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God asked Cain, where is Abel your brother? What does that mean? And Cain answers, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Was he right that he didn't know? You're talking about the person able or the body able. How complicated is this response to God and how complicated is God's question to Abel? I'm going to say to you that Cain lies to omniscient God. He knows where Abel is the person and is driven from God's face. Did Satan then therefore lie to God at the trial of Adam and Eve and was driven from God's face and cursed from the earth? Can I make that assessment or that assignment? Two murderers, Satan and Cain, both are cursed. Both lose their standing before God. The symmetry of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 cannot be dismissed. The components are strikingly parallel. And I would expect that because both would be sevens. And they would go back to the creation seven. 
Something about what God did to Abel and what God did to uh, Adam is reflected in what God did when he came to the darkness and void of the earth. So I have murders. Satan murdered Eve and attempts to murder Adam. Notice how I said attempts to murder Adam. He was, the murder of Eve was his attempt to murder Adam. Why did he approach it that way? Because he knew Adam was unmurderable. Is that a word? Unmurderable? It should be. I'll contact um, who does the dictionaries now. I don't know. Abel's body is hidden. Adam hides himself. I'm going to say to you that Adam, Abel is naked by the definition of nakedness. We'll go over all of this uh, in two weeks. What do I mean by nakedness? How does God define nakedness? Remember, he wrote the book. And Adam also has nakedness. So, let me repeat. Abel's body is hidden. Adam hides his body. Abel is has nakedness assigned to him. What do I mean by that? Adam also has nakedness. And how is this the case? Cain is cursed. Satan is cursed. Adam confesses. Eve confesses. Cain confesses. Yes, Cain confesses. Genesis 4.13 And Cain said to the Lord, My sin, iniquity, is greater than I can bear. Now your Bibles probably says, Thank you for the time. Can I go past it? Because it's going to happen. Um, My sin, iniquity, is greater than I can bear. Your Bibles would probably say punishment. The word is not punishment. That's a mistranslation. Cain says to God, My sin, my iniquity, is greater than I can bear. Why is that a confession? He says he has sin. That's true words for all of us, right? Our sins are greater than we can bear. We need somebody who is able to bear sin for us. You can see the origins of the salvation plan in these uh, events. I'm not going in any discernible order, as you can tell. Don't let the seeming anarchy of, um, of that deter you from noticing all these shared characteristics, facets. Hopefully everyone has detected the legal traits in both Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Both of them are trials. The judge of all things has come. Christ is the judge of all things. John 5.22, Daniel 7.9-14. through 14. He is the Ancient of Days. He sits on the throne and he comes to an afraid. Adam is afraid of something. I've gone over this hundreds of times. What is he afraid of, Adam? He's afraid of Eve going to the tree of life. And there's no question that's what he's afraid of. If he, she goes to the tree of life in a sin state, then she is forever in a sin state. And he's afraid. Now, is, is he going to go to the tree of life in a sin state? Maybe he's afraid that he is too, subject to it. He's hiding from what? Or from who? Next time we get together, we'll beat this down again. I've done it many times, but... Sometimes I leave things out just because I don't want to overwhelm people. So I'll, I promise I'll overwhelm you on the 12th. 
But both of these are trials. The judge of all things has come, and he's come to an afraid, naked, hiding Adam, and he subjects Adam to questioning. He subjects Adam to cross-examination, and Cain receives the identical processes, and sentences are then, judgment sentences of judgment are delivered, curses are meted out, justice is administered, this unmistakable repeating pattern in both Genesis 3 and 4. Jesus, the light of life, Genesis 1, comes to the darkness. The light of life, he's described with white light, white as snow, all around him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That's Revelation 1.14 and Daniel 7.9. He's the ancient of days and he's coming to darkness in Genesis 1.3. And he comes for Adam and Eve, and he comes for Cain, and he comes to Sodom to give you another place where he comes. The light of life, the white light, the ancient of days, the the figure in Revelation is coming to Sodom. Is that good news for Sodom? He's coming in the tribulation that way too, so you see him coming. He's the judge and he presides over a court of law. You are going to stand before your judge. So am I. We'll be there together. Don't stand next to me. Evidence is presented at these trials and testimony is heard. And the judge of all things, as you know, will eventually send his two witnesses to testify to the darkness of the earth at the tribulation. The earth is in tremendous darkness. Darkness refers to what? presence of Satan, evil, disbelief, and light comes to that darkness. When Christ comes to the earth to confront the armies of the Antichrist, what's going to happen? I'm going to put it on the board. And you have to decide if you thought of this yourself. That's what happens. Salvation will happen. For who? The light of life is coming to the darkness. Light coming to darkness. And the light of life is good. Goodness is assigned only to God. Only God can be good. He comes on the first day of the first seven days of God, right? The light comes to darkness. That configuration, the first day he's coming. And he reprises this first seven, the seven days of God unfailingly all throughout the Bible. You have to start training yourself to find these kinds of things there. Ask, why does he do it? Why does he refer us back to the first seven continuously? Christ comes to a fallen Adam and a fallen Eve, and Adam and Eve in sin, or I could say Adam and Eve in darkness. There it is, light coming to darkness. Matthew 19, 16 through 17, no one is good but God. Christ good, called good. The triune Godhead Elohim says the light is good. That tells you that the light is God himself. God would know that he's the only one that's good. And if he calls something good, then that must be God. So the light is God and the light is Christ. Genesis 1.4. And the good light that brings life to darkness, that's creator God himself. That's Jesus Christ himself. The second person of the triune Godhead and he comes for Adam and he comes for Eve. So there is 
There is a relationship between that first day of creation and when Christ comes for Adam and Eve. First day, first day. And he says, where are you? Obviously, that's day one of the trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan. So I can start the seven, whatever the seven is, right there and compare it to the creation seven. Where are you is correlative to, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and he, and he was good. That's probably the best translation. God saw the light, and he was good. You'll notice it is in italics, and they assume the it is there. The it was is in italics. I think the correct translation was God saw the light, that he was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. The light is not darkness. That separation is incredibly important. I said maybe last week, I think I said it, I hope I said it. I feel like that little train now. The light takes from the darkness. Know that, that the light takes from the darkness. He is coming to take from the darkness. The darkness has something and the light takes it. The darkness possesses things and the light takes from the darkness. Christ has come to take from the darkness. Notice I'm beating that into you. That which is in darkness will be taken from the darkness. It will be abducted, if you will. The light takes from the darkness on the first day of the seven. It is what he does. Matthew 12:29. I got to read it. I know I'm killing you. I wish there was an easier way to do it. This is an important verse, always seldom uh, really studied in the, in the church because it is about the uh, rejection of Christ. But here, this is what he says. How can one, and that one is him, he's the one, it's capitalized. How can one enter a strong man's house? In other words, how can I, he says, enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless I first bind the strong man? See, that's the principle. Christ explains the principle. The context of that particular verse is the charge from the Pharisees that Christ is actually Satan. And the context is the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ on the basis that Jesus is actually Satan. And within this context, Christ reveals that he is coming to Satan's house. And what's he going to do? He's going to plunder it. He's going to take something from Satan. He's going to ransack it. He's going to go through the house, find what he wants and take it. He's going to, uh, the house of the strong man is going to be uh, essentially just strewn about. And he asks, how can one do that unless one, unless I can do what? Bind Satan. I got to tie him up. Well, how do you do that? Who can do that? He must have the ability, the power to bind Satan, to confine Satan, to restrain him, to chain him, to imprison him. That's exactly what happens in Revelation 21 and 2, right? Matthew 4, 10 through 11 also. That's the behold. He says, away with you. He has the ability to bind Satan whenever he wants. And when he does it, he goes into Satan's house and he steals his stuff. 
Lazarus came out of the tomb. How was Lazarus? He was bound what? Hand and foot. Bound hand and foot in the death coverings. And Christ said, loose him. He has the ability to unbind darkness, which is death, which is Satan, which is murder. All of those things attached to darkness. Adam and Eve had what kind of coverings on them? They had death coverings on them. Fig leaves and Christ removed their death coverings. He replaced them with garments of blood. This red stain clothed with red stained coverings. And what do you say? What do you suppose? What day do you suppose of the seven day trial of Adam did God remove the death coverings? Pick a day. He comes on the first day. When does he remove the death coverings of the seven day trial of Adam? Make the association to the seven-year judgment seat of Christ now. God removes the garments of Adam and Eve and replaces them. Fig coverings are therefore a symbol of that which must be removed. They are bloodless. Blood must be present. Life blood as opposed to death blood. I've asked for over 25 years. Did Adam know what he was doing with the fig leaves? Did he know what the significance of covering himself? You forget the fig leaf little apron thing. He's put him head to toe. He's completely covered in fig leaves. Think tar and feathering, if you wish. Did he know what the meaning was? Absolutely he did. It's obvious that he did. He knowingly, purposely chose figs. Ask why. Don't have time today. The fig coverings were a central piece of Adam's confession. And Adam covered himself again, head to foot, bound himself, if you wish, in figs. The fig garments must reflect death and they must reflect darkness. And Christ removes them, thereby placing into the judicial record the precedent that lifeblood, the blood of life, must be the covering. And we must come into the courtroom, the throne of the judge with only, with the only acceptable garment, and that is his blood garment. To attempt otherwise is wickedness. Matthew 22:11 through 13. The penalty will be severe. What does Christ do to the man who comes without the blood garment? He binds him. Head and foot. Casts him into outer darkness. Okay, here's the favorite part of the lecture. Finally, where are we? The consummation of the marriage. The proof of the bride's cleanliness is a garment that is red. Blood linen is given as proof of the cleanliness of the bride to the friend of the bridegroom. Is that Israel? The proof of Adam's salvation, in which case, when does Christ give that proof to Israel? The proof of Adam's salvation, Eve's salvation, their cleanliness is their figs are removed and the red covering is put over them, the blood garment. Again, what day does Christ say, where are you? I think first day he comes to the darkness. On what day did the consecrated, separated bride hear, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go forth and meet him? What day does that happen? What day of the seven is the covering of Adam and Eve by Christ? What day is the linen given to the friend? You made it. It wasn't easy. Run for the buffet. <laughs>